Shall we briefly pray before I preach? God of grace, we come before you this morning asking uh, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to listen and hearts to respond to the truth of your word. Make us more like Jesus, for in his name we pray. Amen. Well, there is uh, something very special about the fact that when a baby is born, uh, it is not given a number, but it is given a name. Uh, Six months ago, no, seven months ago, I was sat in uh, a registry office down in Kent uh, to register the birth of our newest child. Uh, Some of the parents in in the room will remember the process well that the registrar will ask a whole range of different confirmation questions. They will ask you when and where the baby was born. They'll ask you uh, what the sex of the baby was, or is, rather. But then comes the the favourite question of every parent, and that is, what is the baby's name? Uh, For nine months, those parents have been turning over in their minds, deliberating over, uh, arguing perhaps about a whole selection of different names. Maybe they've got the book out and they're reading through. But finally, as they sit there in that office, they have settled on a name that they love and a name that has meaning. Well, that is all in spite of the fact that at that point, those parents know nothing about the character and the temperament of that baby. But as we turn to the word of God this morning, you'll know that all the way through the New Testament, there are no shortage of names that are given to describe the person of Jesus. And yet the names are not given because they just sound good or because they seem to just roll off the tongue pretty well. But those names are given because they tell us something of who he is and how he acts and why he came into the world to do what he did. They're special names. They have meaning. And you'll recognize some of them. Perhaps you're thinking of some of them now. The Lamb of God, the great high priest, the author and perfecter of faith, the Son of Man, the last Adam, the way, the truth and the life. And we could go on, couldn't we? The the list seems endless. There are so many names throughout scripture that are given to describe the person of Jesus. But one name that is given is particularly intimate and special and it tells us something about really his heart the heart of Christ for people like you and me and that name is the one that we've already read about this morning from John chapter 10 verse 14 given by Christ himself I am the good shepherd I am the good shepherd centuries before the coming of Christ all the way through the Old Testament Uh, There was this prophecy that a saviour was coming, that a messiah was on his way and he would shepherd his flock. Uh, The people of Israel, they were like sheep that had gone astray. Each of them had turned to their own way. Uh, Many of them had, had wandered from the fold, but others had been abused and they had been mistreated and roughly handled at the hands of bad shepherds. But Jesus says here, by comparison to these bad shepherds, I am the good shepherd. In other words, I am not like them. I am the good shepherd. All the other shepherds were like thieves and robbers. 
They only came to steal and kill and destroy. They had an agenda, but Jesus has a different agenda, doesn't he? I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or some versions say, have it to the full, to the max. God, that is God's mission through Christ for people like you and me, that we might have life in him. What a contrast to those who were living in that day, those religious leaders who were gathering in the crowd as Jesus spoke. But you'll know, won't you, that if if Jesus is the good shepherd, then what's the implication for, for us? Well, it's quite an unflattering picture, isn't it? It's not very complimentary. Because you see, although we live in, most of us, in an industrial society, a world of chrome and glass and steel, some of us, or most of us perhaps this morning, might know something of what it is like to live in the countryside, and therefore we know about the nature of sheep. They're not the most intimidating of creatures, are they? Not about to do some sheep bashing like some preachers do, I'm not intending to. But they're not, are they? If we, if we put together a, a hierarchy of the animal kingdom, where would you put the sheep? Up by the, the lions at the top? No, you'd put them at the bottom of the pile. They don't have sharp fangs. They, they don't have razor-edged claws. They don't have long horns. By all accounts, they're of limited intelligence. They have a tendency to kind of wander all over the place. They've got no strength or speed or stamina. And so, what a sheep need more than anything else? They need a shepherd, they need some direction, they need a protector from the predators. You see, in the the day and age in which Jesus is speaking, everybody knew that the existence of sheep depended on the 24-hour care of a shepherd. And verse 14 demonstrates in no uncertain terms that Jesus is that shepherd. And he knows his sheep. He knows his sheep. That's something of his identity, but also his affection. He knows them. Deep in our hearts, we all long to be known, don't we? We have not been created to live in isolation, outside of human contact, but we've been called to community, haven't we? As human beings, we crave relationship. It's why lockdown this past Was it 19 months has been so difficult for so many of us because it's unnatural? We're not supposed to be locked away from community, but we're called to live in community. And whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you you want a relationship, don't you, of some kind. And so Jesus says here that uh, when relationships are broken, when friendships fail, we must remember that Jesus knows his sheep. Jesus knows his sheep. That's the the wonderful truth, isn't it? In a world like this, that is highly populated, but increasingly marked by disconnectedness, Jesus knows his sheep. He, He knows you better than you know yourself. Even the hairs on your heads. For some of you, that's more than others. But Jesus knows. He knows all about us, doesn't he? That's a wonderful truth for those who perhaps will walk out of this building back to an empty home, feeling the the need for relationship, that Jesus is the chief relationship for sheep like us. It's interesting, isn't it, if you're on social media, some of you will be, some of you are better than that and you've, you've avoided it 
Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, maybe you've got hundreds, thousands of followers and friends and yet you ironically feel more alone and and more in isolation because of these things. They, They don't bring you what Christ has promised here in this passage, that he knows his sheep. This is the most intimate of all relationships, deeper than parent and child or even husband and wife. Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his sheep. And if you've trusted in him this morning, then you can cling to that, can't you? That you have a companion for life. You know, the role of a shepherd in the first century was a a very personal job. Years upon end, they would be out there in the field among the flock, leading them into green pastures, leading them beside still waters, even through the valley of the shadow of death, as we read in Psalm 23. That was the role of a shepherd. He was with his sheep. He, He knew them by name. And, and though to the untrained eye, all of those sheep, they kind of just look like the same. The shepherd knows the good, the bad and the ugly. He knows all the defects and the little peculiar traits. He, he's given them a name. And when he calls out to a sheep, his sheep, they don't keep their head in the grass today, but that little head pops up and they follow the sound of their shepherd's voice. Sheep and shepherd have a great intimate relationship. It's a little bit different today. Today they, they drive sheep from behind with a collie perhaps or a, a tractor. I don't know how they do it. I'm speaking as a, a guy who's clearly not from the country. But shepherds back then, they, they led the sheep from the front. It was a, a personal job and, and so much so that the intimacy of the relationship with Christ as our good shepherd is paralleled, it's mirrored on the intimacy of God the Father and God the Son. Do you notice that mind-blowing statement from that verse? That just as we see the relationship in the Godhead, so Christ has towards people like you and me. But it goes even further, doesn't it? It's in verse 15. Because Jesus demonstrates his love for us in the laying down of his life for the sheep. That's what we read in verse 11. That's what we read in verse 15. It's what we read again uh, in verse 17. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a dad of three boys. And my boys know that when I say something twice, it means this is really, really important. But if I say something three times, I mean, that, that's absolutely critical. It's, it's central. They must come. And so it is here. You notice that, that Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, not once, not twice, but three times. And yet I don't think as as 21st century urbanized individuals, by and large, that we are quite struck by this phrase, I lay down my life for the sheep, quite like Jesus's original hearers would have been. Because you see, ancient shepherds, they would risk their lives, but, but, but no matter how much they loved their sheep, they never planned to, to die for them. But here, the good shepherd is, has kind of planned it all out, hasn't he? He lays down his life of his own accord. That, that is quite some job commitment, isn't it? How highly must this shepherd value his sheep? But in saying this, Jesus is, is pointing forwards to the crucifixion. He's pointing to Calvary and he's saying that this is no accident, this is no unplanned event, 
The cross does not sneak up on Christ and catch him off guard, but it was always there in the eternal plan of God. The covenant of redemption is a theological term that we use for it. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit entered into an agreement before the foundations of the world were laid that he would save a people. And so we can, we can look at the cross today, 2,000 years from the event, and we can see that what looked like a tragedy was actually a triumph. What looked like a big mistake, the moment of defeat, was actually the moment of purposeful victory for believers in every age of history and in every corner of the globe. In every corner of the globe. Well, that is what I would like us to consider as we move into verse 16. Having seen something in verses 14 to 15 of the nature of the shepherd, our good shepherd, we now move down the passage and we go further afield. And I don't usually start my sermon as in my first point about 20 minutes in. I promise I won't keep you too long this morning. But this is our first point, a vision beyond our congregation. A vision beyond our congregation. That is what we need. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. I wonder when you think about the gospel, do you have a vision beyond these four walls? I wonder do, if, if I were to, to kind of eavesdrop in on your personal prayer life, would, would I hear petitions for uh, people in every corner of the globe, not just the immediate people that you're rubbing shoulders with? Now, please don't think in saying this that I'm, I'm discouraging you away from praying for the body, praying for your brothers and sisters that God has uh, planted you next to in this congregation or another That is biblical, that's right, we are to pray for one another. But if our thoughts and our prayers for our immediate brothers and sisters are to the neglect of those who have not heard the gospel, not just in our country but uh, all over the world, then I believe we've missed a vital aspect of what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 10 verse 16. It's sad to say that, that many Christians today... Uh, particularly in a well-to-do country like our own, are just far too comfortable. They're far too comfortable with who they are and what they're doing and how their ministry is going and uh, content to just stay in their cosy church bubble. And they forget that there is a world out there that is dying without Christ. And Jesus here, he contradicts such a Such a way of thinking by saying quite explicitly that there are others, there are other sheep which are not of this fold. You can just imagine, can't you, as he as he glances uh, along the crowd and he sees his his small band of 12 disciples, a puny bunch of men, nobodies in society. And he uh, essentially says to them in this statement with great enthusiasm that you are not all that there is. This small remnant will increase to a great multitude. Christ is is pointing in this verse to the worldwide scope of the gospel. And you can just envisage, can't you, the speechless crowds as they sit and listen to this astonishing revelation as Jesus stands and tells them that while they were a nation that had been so historically blessed under the covenants, 
Though they were a people who had been uh, given the law through Moses and, and, and told that through them a Messiah would one day come. Though they were so blessed as a people, yet there were others. There were Gentiles, there were non-Jews, there were outcasts like you and me. And so aren't you grateful for a verse like this this morning? What a, what a tremendous truth that Christ's flock is not confined to believers simply from among the Jews, but the circle has extended to include people like you and me. In one sense, you could say this morning that if you're a believer in Christ, then your name is recorded here in verse 16. You are part of the other sheep. And yet while we may marvel at such things, while we might sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Though we might see this as a positive, for Jesus' original hearers, this was problematic in their minds. No, it was more than that. It was cataclysmic in their minds. They, they could not believe what they were hearing Jesus saying. Because the crowd at this point were 100% ethnic Jews and had forgotten the promise that was made to Abraham all those years before. Genesis twenty-two eighteen. In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. They'd lost sight of that reality, that promise. They had too narrow a view of the sheepfold. They were becoming exclusive. And yet Christ here, essentially in verse 16, opens the door of the sheepfold and announces to them that there are others. The gospel is, is not ethnocentric, focused only on a select few. It's a beautiful thing to see diversity amongst the body, to see people not only of different ages and stages of life, but people from other nations gathering into this small building. What a testimony and what a great incentive that ought to be for evangelism. What a great thing that ought to be to celebrate as we look forward to the Revelation 5 picture of a, of a great multitude made up of every tribe and people and tongue and nation. You remember, don't you, at the, the beginning of the book of Acts, shortly before Jesus ascended into heaven, before Pentecost, when the Spirit came with power upon the church to, to empower them for mission. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Judea in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The gospel is not for a particular group of people, but it is for all who will believe. And yet Jesus' hearers needed then what I believe you and I need today. We need a vision beyond our congregation. We need to extend the, 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 the horizon and we need to be made aware of a world that is lost and dying without Christ. I was preaching in another congregation a few weeks back. And I was hearing the story about uh, when that church had done their first ever evangelism. They'd never done any kind of outreach in the community. And so they, they felt convicted by the word that they should do something. And so they bought 7,000 pocket-sized King James Version Bibles. And they posted those Bibles through the letterboxes of everyone on the church doorstep. And uh, they were so discouraged because all of that effort, all of that money, and there was no fruit. Nobody responded. All except one. 
The following Sunday, her father came to church, having been invited with his reluctant 12-year-old son. And that son grew up, and he got converted, and he now serves as the pastor of that congregation. I tell you from a chat that I had with that man, that he is eternally grateful for the fact that that church was not too comfortable that they had a vision beyond their congregation, that they looked beyond their four walls and they did something in response to the Great Commission. But the second thing we have here is a mission that demands our attention. A mission that demands our attention. I want to convince you this morning that mission is not for a select few, but mission is for every believer. Look again at verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Not only are we to be missionary minded, but we're also to be missionally active. Jesus doesn't say I might, but I must bring them. I was reading about a missionary whose every step forward was quickly followed by two steps back. Every blessing that he encountered on the field was quickly counteracted by a trial. As a young man, Peter Cameron Scott was sent overseas to Africa, but like many in the 1800s, he was soon forced to return home because he had contracted malaria. And his spirits were pretty low, but he was given another shot. But this time, round two, he went out with his brother by his side. But disaster soon struck, and he soon found himself all alone again, having to bury his own brother. Again, what should he do? Should he call it a day? Should he take the hint, pack his bags and go home? Well, he did come home, but not for long, because he went to London and he went to Westminster Abbey. And he stood before the tomb of the previous missionary pioneer, David Livingstone. And on the the gravestone, he read these words, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, I must gather them also. And it was from that moment, from that text, John 10, 16, that God used him, re-energized him, kick-started him back onto the mission field. And there that man spent the rest of his life devoted to his calling and eventually establishing the work of Africa Inland Mission, which remains to this day. All of this fruit simply because of the truth that is contained in our text this morning. I must gather them. This is Christ's mission. This is what Jesus must do. In coming into the world, finish the work for which he was sent. You know, when I say that I must do something, my wife will confirm this with a a nod and a smile. That there's a likelihood that it won't get done. I procrastinate, I go off on a tangent, I get quickly distracted from the task. But when Jesus says must, Spurgeon says this. Whenever Jesus says must, something comes of it. Who can resist the omnipotent must? If Jesus says must, difficulties vanish, impossibilities are achieved. And so in preaching the gospel, I am not fishing with a chance and perhaps that some may come. They shall come. That was Spurgeon's conviction, but it ought to be yours and mine as well. But I wonder if, if 
like many, you read a verse like this and you kind of just excuse yourself. Because you notice what it says? Jesus says, I must gather them. So if Jesus is doing the gathering, then we kind of just sit on our hands and call it a day and say, well, our efforts are futile. Is that, is that what we do? We kind of just let go and let God do his work in the world. We're not at all. While we believe that God builds his church, while we confess that God is totally sovereign in salvation, yet he has a means of accomplishing his purposes in the world. He uses people like you and me, broken vessels. And it's why we've got the Great Commission. You see, when Jesus says, I must gather them, that doesn't provide us with an excuse for neglecting mission, but actually the very fuel upon which mission runs. Because Jesus is going to gather his church, you and I must go to every tribe and people and tongue and nation all across the globe. It is your responsibility and it is mine to take the message out to the world. And we can be sure that people will hear. Evangelism in the 21st century, in such a secular age like this, can be pretty discouraging at times. And we can find ourselves being ridiculed and mocked and made to look a fool. And we maybe think, well, now's not the time. Let's barricade the doors. Let's, uh, let's keep our faith to ourselves. But the Bible says here, quite simply, that before Jesus comes, you and I must go. Because, notice the promise in the middle of verse 16. They will hear my voice. You see, our good shepherd is not like the hired hands who call out to the sheep, but they do not listen. Sheep don't follow strangers. No, sheep know the sound of their shepherd's voice. And so it is when it comes to the preaching of the gospel. We must be faithful, recognising that Christ speaks through his servants. We are the mouthpieces, the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And through our proclamation, faithfully spoken, Christ will faithfully gather a flock. I had this um, quote uh, pinned to my corkboard in my fresher year at university, perhaps Will or others up there can remember this. I used to love this quote. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Some of you are thinking lowly of me now because it's not true, is it? That's not a true statement. I think it was Francis of Assisi who said it, but it's not right. It's not what Romans 10 says because the Bible says quite simply that Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So our life is important. We don't want to diminish that. We must be faithful in the way that we live, but we must speak. We've got to be vocal in our proclamation of the gospel. We need to tell out our soul the greatness of the Lord in the communities that God has sovereignly planted you. We need to speak. This is God's chosen method to reach out to a world that is dying in sin and heading to a lost eternity by hearing. And yet every individual who does not respond to the saving message of the gospel, those who turn a blind eye to the warnings of scripture, the Bible says in no uncertain terms that they will spend an eternity in hell. 
And that's something that we, we kind of shudder to think about. We, we maybe neglect to speak about hell, but, but Jesus makes more of men- a mention of this than he does of heaven. Hell is a real place in our sincerity and our good intentions and our money and our talents and our time. They're just not good enough. They are not sufficient to save us. They will not gain us acceptance with God. And so this world needs none other than Jesus Christ, this good shepherd. And the question is, are you sharing the news? Are you sharing the news? Are you taking this text as a search warrant within our communities? Are we willing to do for others what others have faithfully done with us? You can look back at your testimony. And you can see that you were once walking according to the course of the world, but somebody stepped in and they faithfully spoke a word for Jesus and you're here today. A testimony of grace. Are you doing that for other people? Well then just briefly in closing, having been made aware of a vision beyond our congregation and a mission that demands our attention, look at the bottom line of verse 16, at a union because of our salvation. We are to be missionary minded, missionally active, but notice here we're marvelously united. The other sheep will listen, but something even greater is the future promise. At the end of this verse, there will be one flock, one shepherd. In other words, Christ will accomplish something globally among all people. His kingdom and his flock will be comprised with people from all over the place, a colourful melting pot of humanity. And more than all of this, even today, Christ is still seeking and saving the lost, gathering in sheep from all over the world. It would be hard to ignore the atrocities that are happening as I speak in Afghanistan right today. And you've seen the news, you've seen the headlines, you've perhaps wept as you see those devastating scenes of young men clinging to the wings of a plane in pure desperation to leave from this oppressive terrorist movement. And as expected, we've even seen the news of underground churches being totally wiped out. And you see that and you think to yourself, well... Is God done with Afghanistan, Taliban? They're a pretty strong organisation. There's no way that Christ can conquer in a place so dark. And yet, God is doing something. Even in the darkest part of our world, God is still gathering in sheep. This good shepherd will win the day. He will accomplish his work of gathering sheep into the fold, even in a place like that. And we ought to pray, therefore, And we ought to go because God will do a work through people like you. He'll get his people to heaven. He will finish what he started. And it's not a maybe. Notice the guarantee. Notice the certainty of the word that is used in that final statement, will. One old preacher said, I love the the shalls and the wills of the Bible. Because when God says, I will do something, you can guarantee that it will get done. And that is the message here. 
Because we, we, we can't abolish the distinctions between nations. There will always be racism and tension and terrorism and warfare and divided countries. But in spite of these things, there is this real and visible unity for those who trust in Jesus Christ as the Good Shepherd. That is the message. And I wonder, are you involved, therefore, in the work of mission? Have you got a heart for the other sheep to be gathered into this flock? Isaiah was right when he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. And yet Jesus Christ came into the world to live and die so that many might be gathered into this one flock and under this one shepherd. And so as a closing statement, the truth is this. The good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep and the challenge is this will we not in response give our lives for the other sheep amen let's pray heavenly father we are not sufficient for this task but we thank you that jesus christ goes before us and he empowers us by the spirit for mission We pray that you would convict us this morning of the times that we have been embarrassed and lackluster in our witness. And we pray that through what we've heard this morning that you might inspire us to be more faithful as ambassadors in the world that is dying without Christ. Help us to to have a heart for other sheep and to be active in gathering them in, knowing that you will accomplish that for which you were sent. In Jesus' name.